There were times where I was deeply, deeply miserable. I was looking at, you know, negative $700 in my bank account. My phone wouldn't work unless I was connected to Wi-Fi because my cell service had been shut off. And it was those moments where I was like, stay the course, stay the course. It's going to pay off. You know, I, I, I do have, I am kind of a, a spiritual person. And so kind of this, this belief that there was something bigger at play. Episode 47, I bring in Michael Canavo, CMO of Super 73. Those badass bikes that you see on the road, electric bikes. I own one. I love it. I get a bunch of looks. People ask me all the time what they are. Guys, I cannot tell you and express to you how much I enjoyed this conversation with Michael. One of the most inspirational stories, a ton of perseverance in Michael's life starting at the age of about 18 when his mom told him he's got to go and he's got to fly his wings and be on his own because he wasn't digging life. He was down on himself, down on life, and that was the best decision that his mom did and he's got no remorse. This is nothing but great things. And if she never told him to leave home and be on his own, he wouldn't be the person he is today. This guy had negative $700 in his bank account for a straight year, flipping pizzas to running a multi-million dollar business. It's one of my favorite episodes. All due respect to all of the guests that I've had. This guy is the real deal. And I hope you share this episode because it doesn't matter where they are or where you are in your life. This is a story we can all learn from. We start the conversation talking about stocks and what they have done like the GameStop stock and what Reddit has done in pushing that stock and hyping that stock. And then we get into his business, his life, his childhood. Ooh, man, it's a good episode. Episode 47 with Michael Canavo, the CMO of Super 73. Here we go. How's the day going so far? Uh, pretty wild. I'm sure at this point you're into stocks as well, right? Yep. yep. Uh, what have What have you been up to with it? Look, I, I've got a nephew who's younger than I. Obviously, he's like 23, 24 years old, and he's been on that Reddit page. And he's, I told him, I was like, dude, you gotta look out for me. Like, I'm not gonna go, you know, on yeah. that thing all day long. So I'm like, let me know the next that next symbol. Just like shoot that out at me. So I've I've been on Nokia. Um, it yeah. hasn't really done much, but. That GameStop and I know. Oh my gosh, man! And I AMC. Know. Like I was talking yeah. to a buddy yesterday. We're gonna do a YouTube video on it. On it, look, I think they're getting exposed like big time, yeah. right? The market is like it means nothing, man. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's it's been insane to watch, and and um, you know, as a I don't know what I'd be a, a middle middle of the run millennial. I've been on Wall Street bets for a couple of years, and I've only ever seen them fail at trying this sort of thing. So it's really cool. I mean, it all comes down to, to basically one user. He bought, uh, about a year ago, he bought, it was like 40,000 shares of GameStop, hmm. uh, knowing that this was going to happen. And um, he's been kind of leading the way. And yesterday, he, at one point, he was up $50 million. <laughs> Um, and this is just a normal person. Uh, you and <laughs> at one I, point he was up. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, he was that's up, what, he was, that's what pisses these, these global elites off. Right. I, I know. Yeah, <laughs> like, Oh my God, you, you found they're, out the system. This is how it works. You're right. They're 
crying on the financial news mm-hmm. shows. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yesterday he lost $30 million and mm-hmm. he held. Mm-hmm. He didn't sell. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of inspiring the rest of the subreddit to join in because if this dude is is holding and like literally walked away from 50 million then like everybody else is committed to doing it too so it's been it's been fun to watch well and it's been up it's up what 130 bucks today yeah yeah it's doing really well i uh i i got in on a dip which i'm happy about because i was part of robin hood and and um i actually placed an order when it was at 190 Mm-hmm. And they canceled it, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and so I'm really bummed. But I caught it again at at, at 290. So I just, I'm waiting to see what happens here. Yeah, nuts, man. It's crazy. You know what? What's nuts, Michael? Is that it's got nothing to do with business planning, revenues, the <laughs> business itself. Like AMC, in my opinion, is meaningless going forward. I think people are yeah. just going to be home watching TV and watching movies, yeah. right? It's all going to be streamed online. AMC Absolutely. is worthless, but look what they've done, man. Like it's all <laughs> hype, man. It's all hype. It's got nothing to do with your business model at all. It's insane. And now now the big guys are calling for regulation because they lost on yep. one. It's wild, man. Not, not, it's been fun. Like it's, the little guy, man. One, the one time the little guy wins and these dudes come and like try to like get you. It's Literally one of them was crying on the news yesterday. It was insane, man. Such bullshit. Crazy. Yeah. Kid, how, what did you want to do as a kid? Did you ever think you'd be doing this right now? No, 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 no. I actually, uh, I mean, literally my entire life I was uh, working to be an Air Force pilot, which oh, is, wow. is wild. But I did Civil Air Patrol. I, I did uh, everything I needed to do to get into the Air Force Academy. I was accepted on my first round and then denied on my second, basically meaning I met the standards and met the standards for athletics too. I was going to play on the football team. And then when it came time to assign, you know, how many uh, cadets were coming from each state, uh, they only took two from the state of California mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't one of them. So um, I ended up having to pivot, uh, which led me to, you know, twirling signs for Verizon, uh, uh, making pizzas at Costco, working in a, a law office, doing paperwork, uh, it kind of led me to complete and utter, uh, I guess, just like mental and emotional exhaustion, uh, thinking that I was going to have to make pizzas for the rest of my life. And then, you know, a couple of pivots and wild ideas. And, and here I am today, which is, you know, crazy. <laughs> so that was in your like 20s, I'm assuming, like mid 20s. Yeah, yeah. So I graduated high school uh, at 17. So I graduated pretty young. um, And it gave me some time to kick around. And uh, about a week after I turned 18, um, my my parents were, um, were (laughs) uh, my parents are wonderful parents. And my mom came to me and she goes like, hey, for the sake of our relationship, maybe you maybe you think about moving out because <laughs> I was just like I was so clearly unhappy and, and I don't blame her at all yeah. I was in such a bad mood all the time I was depressed all my friends got to go off to college and I was looking at that 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 paperwork from the Air Force Academy without having a backup plan I've never really had a backup plan um still don't have a backup plan uh <laughs> but um but uh yeah I, I was looking at that so it was, it was uh, quite a bit of depression I went through to to kind of like learn about hey what is my value what's my value to society what am I able to do without my parents' money? Because I went to a private school, so everybody got shipped off to college. Their parents were able to pay for everything. Mine weren't necessarily in a position to do that. Mm-hmm. So it was a matter of, of just 
getting to work. And, and um, I started going to community college, I ended up dropping out a total of probably about five times. And it, it, I always say it finally stuck on the fifth time. And, and I, and I was like, college isn't for me. And again, my mom, uh, you know, mentioned to me, this was when I was about 21. My mom was like, Hey, look, you, you can go to school or you can join the real world and, and you're going to get schooled. So you're going to get an education either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which it will be in a classroom and the other one will be with real world consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that, you know, that, that idea of like, Hey, spend the next four years learning. Don't worry about anything because while everybody else is in school, you know, and, and not necessarily making money, I could spend time learning and making money, mm-hmm. um, which led to, you know, a lot of businesses that, that didn't end up working out, but, you know, ultimately got me to where I am now. I love that mentality, man. School of hard knocks, right? You've got like a bunch of professors rather than one or two, and you're learning from all of these people like off the street, basically, and just hard right. knocks. I love it, man. Right. I love that mentality. Right. The Air Force. Now, was that your way of going into it because you felt like you didn't have another plan in life? No, actually. I, um, ever since I was, I mean, I was, my first obsession was balloons when I was young, like, and I'm talking like even up to five or six, uh, a good birthday for me was getting a, a, a bunch of balloons. Like I literally didn't need anything but balloons because I liked, I was so infatuated with looking up and, and looking at the sky and. Uh, being in the sky and um, kind of adrenaline and, and thrills. And uh, and so I was like, hey, I want to go fly for the Air Force. And I, I fell in love with the uh, the A-10 Warthogs, the tank busters that they used so heavily in Desert Storm, which were, were I mean, it's an outrageous plane. I'm, I'm sure you, you've seen in the moment the Warthog face mm-hmm. is painted on the sides. They do these low swoops. It's just, you have to be a madman mm-hmm. uh, to, to fly that. And that was definitely what, what I was, you know, obsessed with. So everything I was doing, I, I took my flight classes, you know, and, and, and even as I was looking at, you know, that, that, that air force rejection letter, um, I was still taking flight lessons in an attempt to like, Hey, maybe I can learn how to fly, graduate college and then join. Cause I didn't want to join as anything but a pilot, you know, wanted to, uh, didn't want to be working on planes. I wanted to be in the plane. And there is some, there is some interesting kind of irony there with now creating these electric bikes and getting faster and faster and faster and, and, you know, feeling that wind and it is a, a nerfed version for sure, but it's a way I've, I've been able to kind of meet that little bit of adrenaline at three o'clock every day when it gets a little bit exhausting here, I can pop out for five minutes and scare myself by riding too fast and too hard. Is that because you take the governor off the e-bike of yours that you sell? I don't legally take anything away uh, on the record of anything. Uh, all of our all of our bikes are completely up to government codes and, and standards. But yeah, I mean, as, as as technology evolves, our products evolve as well. So one more question, because I'm I'm intrigued. The uh, the flying thing now is this something that you'd want to get moving forward? Your license. Just if fly like a little Cessna vehicles. or something? Right, yeah. right. Well, if we're already making vehicles, who's to say that in 10 or 15 years, the word Super 73 doesn't mean electric planes, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Uh, there's a there's a lot of new technology coming out, and while we have no plans at the moment to jump into electric planes, the reason why we, we initially named ourselves Lithium Cycles, uh, the reason why we ditched that name is, one, it was an awful, it was an awful name, uh, but two, it, it, it kept us to everything that was just cycles like bicycles you know and and that's where it was like well we didn't want to limit ourselves and like i said we don't have plans to necessarily 
break into new markets, but uh, Legrand and Aaron, my, my, my two business partners, um, and myself were all crazy enough to try something like that at some point. So, you know, I think having that window open kind of keeps us excited about doing what we're doing. Let's talk about the Super 73. You know, I've heard interviews that you've done in the past. Nobody mm-hmm. has asked where that name came from. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's many different stories of, of why 73. You know, when it comes down to it, I think 73 was just the number that we could find enough reasons to agree on to pick. I grew up in Southern California my whole life. I actually didn't leave the state of California until I was like 22. And to me, Southern California is perfect weather. And perfect weather is, is 73 degrees. Mm. And so that was a big one for us. I love it. Um, another one is, is we're actually stationed right next to the, uh, the toll road, the 73. Mm. And the, the, uh, the toll road was built as a way to circumnavigate the horrendous transportation system in Southern California. It was built as a way to get around the 405, the five traffic, everything in general, and kind of make you enjoy the drive a little bit more. And so that was obviously too poetic for us to ignore. And then, you know, finally, the the oil crisis was in 1973. And it was when America and the world first realized that we couldn't necessarily keep going the way we're going with oil and uh, fossil fuels. Now I got a story, man. When I'm out in my S2 <laughs> and they asked me where the name came from, I got a story for them. There, there's, there's a few good ones right there to pick from. Love it. How'd you get into it? There's got to be a good story about this one. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we, we all kind of, uh, all of us, we, we came from very different places. Now, after I was at Costco for, for quite a while and I was actually a supervisor there and I, I thought, hey, you know, I'm, I'm drinking the Costco Kool-Aid. Everybody here loves their job. They pay me enough so that I can survive. And this is probably what I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life, which is fine. It's, it's a fine career and, and Costco treats their employees really well and, and it's all well and good there. But one day I, I got zapped. I got, it's not technically electrocuted because I didn't die, but the easiest way to describe it is electrocution. On a, uh, on a pizza display, I, I touched a live wire. And I remember being stuck to that industrial machine and thinking my parents are going to have to identify me and I'm in an apron and a hairnet. And that was like, that was the, the day I woke up. I literally got shocked into mm. awareness. I was very much immediate anxiety about like, I have done nothing. I am no one. I will be forgotten. I've left nothing better for society. Uh, I literally just took some resources and then died. Um, mm. and how, so how old that, were you there, Michael? Uh, I was, let's see, when that happened, I was... 21. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was about eight years ago and, uh, I couldn't do it. It was just, I, I, I walked out, went to the hospital, you know, got all checked up. It, it burst all the blood vessels in my arm. It broke my skin in multiple places. Like it was awful. My arm was purple. You know, it was one of those moments where the paramedics are sitting around me. I'm on the floor and, and, um, they've got, you know, me hooked up, my finger hooked up, my chest hooked up. And it was that like, hey, you shouldn't have been able to pull away from this. It was one of those moments, very, you know, uh, stereotypical in like a in like a near death experience where somebody says like, you shouldn't have made it out of this. And that I think was was really kind of what kicked it off. So I went back to work for a couple of days, and then I just put in my two week notice, and I was like, hey, I, I can't 
I can't do this anymore. I can't waste my life. And I had no idea what I was going to do, but I had been making YouTube videos and my YouTube videos were terrible, but I had learned how to edit and I had learned how to film. And so I started shooting weddings for like a hundred bucks a piece. Hmm. And I would shoot like three weddings a week. Uh, I would take whatever jobs I could get. I would shoot engagement videos. I would shoot family videos. I was hustling and it was coming down to basically I was making like $7 an hour shooting videos because I was charging so little. And you're moved out and, at this point, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I've been out since I was 18. Okay. Um, so there'd been a lot of times where, you know, phone bill, phone gets shut off mm-hmm. or, uh, collections comes after me. So I was very used to running from like collection agencies at that point. Um, so when, you know, when you, you kind of skirt the line that often, it's almost like it loses its, its power over you. And this kind of comes into play a little bit later on in my, in my story too. But I had become very numb to the collections calls or, you know, Verizon telling me my phone bill was, was overdue and it was going to be shut off. And it kind of didn't phase me anymore because, you know, when you have no money for them to take, there's nothing else to lose. So yeah, I was hustling a lot and, and I was building up my, my kind of portfolio and I started charging more for weddings and I found that it was working and, you know, I was obviously busting my butt, but I was able to pay my rent. And that was enough for me was that I was free and able to pay my rent. And that kind of turned into consistently booking more and more jobs. So I would book higher jobs and bigger weddings. And I started getting, you know, in league with a lot of photographers who were shooting really high end Orange County weddings. And a big sell for me, I would, I would tell them like, look, I'll be out of your way. I'll be behind you all day. If you need anything, let me know. I can also shoot photos for you on the side. So these photographers kind of fell in love with this videographer who made their job way easier because I knew when, you know, a couple gets engaged the first thing they're going to look for is a photographer. Mm-hmm. Videographers way down the line. And it's more popular these days, but you know, eight years ago, it was still a very, very new idea, a new um, charge to add to that wedding budget. But um, these photographers, when they would book these high end clients would be like, look, I have one videographer I work with. I won't work with anybody, but that one videographer. And that led me to shooting about 50 weddings a year at about 4,000 a wedding. Um, wow. Dude. Which, Good job, right, man. Which, th- thank you for, for somebody who was, you know, living on $12 an hour and, and, you know, struggling for the longest time. I had my own two bedroom apartment uh, in Orange County. I had more money than I knew what to do with. It was, and I was young and, and, you know, my savings account was bigger than, I would assume my parents had ever been with me growing up. So it was this new kind of phenomenon of like, I just, I did it. I just did it. And I felt like such a rock star for a while. My math, my math like is I, correct when it's 200 grand a year, right? Yes. Yes, it was. Um, and so I, I, yeah, so I, and I, I lived, I mean, I did whatever I wanted. I would work on the weekends and then all week I would just go buy stuff or hang out with people or, fly to their fly to my video game friends i would fly to their states and go meet them like it was literally just love it it was it was in in my opinion at my at the time i was living like quote you know my best life love it. um and you're and, and you're then, how old now mike you're you're 22 uh, I'm, 23 i'm 29 i'm 29 right no, now at, at the time when you were when oh you at were, the time yeah, yeah. Tw- i was i was 23 24 oh yeah so that gosh. Kind of worked. dude 200k um, yeah, a year 22 right, 23 which, And that's, and that was my, that was my thought was that like, I couldn't want anything more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got a little bit, 
I just, I got stuck in the routine of it and I started to look around and see like, okay, well I'm the most successful wedding videographer that I know, mm -hmm. but I'm still a wedding videographer. And I remember shooting these weddings at, you know, in Laguna beach, in Newport beach that are like literally million dollar weddings. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, I am, I am being treated like a servant mm -hmm. to these people. But when I leave this wedding, I feel like I'm a king. Mm -hmm. And it was this weird sort of like, eye-opening experience of like, oh, I don't, I don't think I'm where I want to be. I, I think that I've just hit the ceiling on something that's really great. And I, I felt so blessed to be able to do that. But it, it suddenly, you know, you put it in perspective of like, well, how do I build a life on this? Mm -hmm. Well, I was looking around and seeing wedding videographers in their forties, trying to convince young couples that they're hip enough and cool enough to shoot their wedding still. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that will be me in 20 years. <laughs> and it, and I, and I started freaking out and it gave me the same anxiety I used to have mm -hmm. as I walked up to clock in at Costco. Mm -hmm. It gave me that same sort of fear of like, I'm going to waste my life. Because all I'm doing is shooting these weddings, making my money, and then living, doing nothing that is of any importance or gain except to myself. And it, it kind of makes you wake up and realize how small you are. And like, no, dude, you're not, you're not a rock star. You haven't done it. You, you've done nothing except put some cash in your pocket. And I started to really, really hyper fixate on that. And I didn't know what to do. So I just started Googling and I started Googling startups and hey how much should this startup sell for and i started to learn about like the startup game and and venture capitalists and, and and what happens when a startup gets investment or what happens when it goes public and how do you start a business and i started finding all of these interesting businesses in orange county that were trying to make a bigger play at things that i was like these guys are all kind of on this next level i want to go join them so i had this idea to bounce around from startup to startup and offer my services as a videographer to them for 1% of their company because I was so bored. I, I just, I, like I said, I worked on the weekends. It would take me a few hours to edit the video for the wedding. So it wasn't like it was a huge time spend for me. And so I had time. So I was going around to these startups and saying like, look, I'll pop in once a month or twice a month, do all your marketing materials and then I'll bounce. Just give me 1% of your company. And I got about... Uh, 15, give or take, startups under my belt where I had 1% equity. And a lot of them were <sighs> subscription lawn mowing services, mail away for exotic beef jerkies, uh, you know, coffee trading companies, little pubs and breweries that were opening. And it was nothing too remarkable. But I, I did find this group of people in Tustin who were making these kick scooters. Uh, and the company was called Nimble. And they had been making the kick scooters for about two and a half years before I showed up and they just weren't doing so well. It wasn't really a hot product. And in, in like 2013, 2014, nobody really wanted a kick scooter. Bird and Lion didn't exist. There weren't shared scooter rentals and it was pretty nerdy to be seen on a scooter. Mm -hmm. This is a very European product and it was, it was cargo scooter. So you could carry groceries and, and, and the likes of that. And, uh, and the team was just really interesting. And there was one member of the team specifically that I really clicked with and his name was Aaron. And, uh, you know, he had, he had been living in the warehouse because of the startup grind. And it was just eye opening for me to meet somebody who had sacrificed everything on this idea of a dream. And he and I started to hang out a lot and we got, you know, pretty close. And, uh, as the years progressed, we realized like, 
hey, we have the wrong product for the wrong time. And the company wasn't necessarily going in a direction we thought it was going to be profitable. It wasn't making any big moves. So a few of us one weekend thought, hey, let's electrify a 1970s mini bike. And nobody had done that. Like nobody was nobody was doing that form factor. I know if you throw rocks uh, in San Clemente, you can hit somebody riding a bike that looks like ours. But it, it wasn't it wasn't happening at the time. And so we really thought like, hey, this is kind of a cool thing. We genuinely want to be seen on this. And we rode it around uh, Newport Beach. And every five minutes, somebody was like, where did you get that? We said, well, we built it in our garage. And everyone's like, I would buy that. And it was just too serendipitous. I had some some of my uh, video game friends visiting me for the weekend uh, that I had been playing PlayStation with for like the last five years. And I was like, hey, guys, let's go to the desert and make a video with these bikes. So we loaded up the minivan. Uh, my girlfriend at the time drove through the salt flats with the minivan door open. And I was lying on the floor of the minivan, hanging out the side with a camera. And I got this shot of these two guys riding across the desert. And it was just too good of an idea to not launch on Kickstarter. So we all were like, let's on the side, you know, away from Nimble and the current company and what they were currently doing. There was a little group of us that were like, let's launch this electric bike. And we just thought, hey, we'll make enough money to survive. So over the previous two years before that launch, I had thrown everything into Nimble. I had basically spent a lot of my life savings supporting myself while not making money so that I could be with these guys at Nimble full time. And so things were already getting a little tricky. And and, uh, I was seeing, you know, my huge savings account starting to dwindle. And I was still living outside of my means. I was living as if I was still shooting that many weddings a, a month. And so we launched it on Kickstarter with the hopes like, hey, let's make a few bucks. We'll, we'll split it and then we'll do our next product and we'll just keep doing this. And we thought, hey, let's launch a bunch of products. Um, none of us expected Super 73 to do half a million on Kickstarter in the first, you know, 25 days. Mm. And that was... What was your goal? A big sh- uh, 20,000. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've, <laughs> we got, were like, we've got something here. Right, right. And and all of and what was most exciting for us is that these design blogs were picking it up and like Hype Beast and High Snobiety and, and Design Boom. It was these websites that we all admired and looked up to because of how innovative they were and the products they were showing. And we were like, oh, my gosh, they're showing our bikes. There's There's got to be something here. And those original bikes are pretty messy looking. <laughs> if you type in Super 73, like original Kickstarter bike. It, they are very much handmade. They were all handmade here in our facility wow. in, in Tustin. But we did it and we managed to do it. We made no money. In fact, we probably lost money. Along the way, as we electrified this thing, we met this battery and motor guy named Legrand. And Legrand was like, you guys need help. <laughs> um, and he had a very successful business that he was doing where he was just fix, uh, selling batteries and motors to electrify e-bikes, like just normal traditional bicycles. So he was selling these kits. And Legrand was like, look, I'll, I'll move from Las Vegas to Irvine and help you guys out. And he was really kind of this moment where we were like, oh, okay, wait. If Legrand sees value in this, then, then maybe this should be a whole company. So we turned it into a company called it Lithium Cycles, and we called the bike Super Seventy Three. The next, <laughs> the next two and a half years, I mean, I can't begin to express the level of. Uh, I mean, at some point, hell, we were in. 
um, trying to make this thing work. Everything was against us. Uh, battery regulations, shipping regulations, tariffs being hit on us from, from China regarding how you import electronics and how you import batteries. Every single thing that could have gone wrong went wrong. But it was with this idea that we were like, well, we are not going to give up. We're not going to stop doing this. Kind of, I mean, very similar to this, this whole, this whole current stock thing that's happening right now with GameStop, where you have all these regular people that are like, well, if we don't ever sell, we don't lose. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to sell. We're going to hold. And that was the same idea of like, it doesn't matter how bad things get. We're going to continue to hold. And I lost everything. I lost every single penny I had saved so much so that I had to start selling everything that I owned. I was, I'm a big Star Wars fan. It's, it's no secret online. And I, I actually ended up selling off my entire collection that I had amassed over the, you know, the previous 20 years. And it was with this, this goal and this motivation that like this, this is going to work. This can't fail. So through all of these hardships, we realized like, you know, the team changes, the team shifts, people come, people go. Um, but Aaron Legrand and I, the three of us were always there. We, we were always agreeing on everything no matter what. And we're very different people, but, but for that to happen, it it was just impressive to see how like united we were against losing. And we eventually found an investor and the investor meeting, it's, it's funny. We, we pitched probably 150 times in Silicon Valley. Everybody said no, because at this time bird and, and and Lime and Lyft were kicking off. Mm. And so everybody was like, yeah, but what's your rental model? What's your like, Mm. how are we going to get subscriptions out of this? And we kept saying, this is an ownership model. This is an ownership model. Trust us. People still want to own vehicles. And everybody was saying at the time, like, no, the entire world is shifting to a shared platform. Nobody's going to own anything in the future. People were saying that there would be no reason to own a car. And we just, we held to, we were like, no, trust us. This is an ownership play. We pitched one time in New York for 10 minutes and they agreed on the spot to invest in us. And so that's the difference between East Coast and West Coast investment ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Silicon Valley, it's all about chasing the unicorn. Mm-hmm. Somebody shows up and they have something cool and everybody wants to chase it. In New York, it's very much they're willing to take risks on big ideas because it's a, it's a much older, more, um, I guess, uh, vetted group of people out there who have been doing this for for way longer than a, than a dot-com bubble, you know? So it, it, it was a much different idea. And these guys invested in us and they were like, go run, run with it. We're not even filling our board seat. We're not going to mm. get in your way. We didn't hear from them. Like we literally didn't hear from our investors because as long as we were doing what we thought was right, they were happy. And that was really cool. And it allowed us to get way more into the fashion and the lifestyle of super 73. And we started getting into like weird viral projects, weird designs and posting them. And suddenly we're showing up on these, you know, these Reddit boards and design boom and hype beast every single week, like week after week with these viral projects and everything started to click. And I think we started to see mass market potential, you know, which we we then started reacting to that by launching new products, new bikes and, they kept hitting. And, and obviously as, as all companies, it's, it's not always success. Like we've definitely hit our, we've had our issues. We've made missteps. We've had to pivot and change our ideas a little bit, but being fully united the entire time has kind of helped us to survive all of that. Whereas a lot of other e-bike companies have kind of faded away because 
the market changes so much. Those geeks up north couldn't be more wrong. Uh, as much as I love <laughs> riding my Super 73, I'll tell you right now, it just sitting in my garage looks cool. Thank you. I, I'm honored. I, I'm super grateful that, that you ride with us. And I think people who own the bikes, you kind of, you realize what the magic is when you have it. It's, it's so bizarre. Like, it's this kind of cool, it's the cool of having a motorcycle without having to put the time and effort and danger into getting a motorcycle. It's, it's really interesting to see. No insurance, no registration. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. You're a class two, so you're on the street. You're l- completely legal instead, you know, unless you're driving like mm-hmm. a jackass. I mean, you're completely legal. Nobody's going to bother <laughs> yeah. you. Dude, it's the coolest yeah. thing. Michael, I can't tell you how often I get looks of the bike. I can't tell you how often people ask what it is. I had my girlfriend on the back of it, and we're riding up a hill, and they're like looking, and they almost got into an accident because they're looking at us like, how <laughs> this guy's not even pedaling. He's like barely pedaling. He's going up this hill. How the hell are they doing this? So, dude, it's it's a magical product. Magical product. That means a lot. Thank yeah. you. Thank now, you. And, and that's yeah. honestly just, I mean, that's such a credit to the people that we've hired, too. I mean, we've, you know, we obviously, we had a great idea, but without a team and the team we have around us is they're, they're so young and so well-minded when it comes to trends and environment and how things are shifting. I mean, our design team is, it's like the heart and soul of Super 73. And so they obviously do a phenomenal job and I'm excited for what's to come too. And that's on you and your two partners too, because it's about hiring and knowing how to hire and knowing how to find the talent. So you guys have done good there. So that's, Thank you. that's a credit to you guys as well. I want to get back to the Kickstarter a little bit because I'm not too familiar with the Kickstarter, but uh, yeah. the way I look at it is if you had half a million dollars in raised funds, was it an issue of you guys just not being able to produce it? <laughs> so we, uh, we didn't know how much it would cost to make a bike. <laughs> like that's just mm. the truth. We were like, um, seventeen hundred a pop feels like a good number. <laughs> and we had done like I would say we had done quote math around it. But if we, I, I can't say that knowing that it costs twice that to make these bikes. I mean that's just the truth. Is mm. you can't make products in America. It, it, mm. It's sad, and it's something that I want to see change over the next you know forty years. Which unfortunately I don't think it will. But. Yeah it is impossible to make things in America. So we made about 700 bikes here mm-hmm. and you know, those bikes, they, they just, they just aren't, they aren't quite what they could have been. And that's because one, we, we made them here. So you don't have as many resources. You have to pay way more for what it is. You have to charge way more. So after that Kickstarter ended, we had to basically double our price just to kind of catch up. And if we weren't such a hot product, we wouldn't have survived that because we ended up, opening pre-orders after the Kickstarter. And those pre-orders were basically our funding. So it was like a, it was almost like a bridge round where we took investment from people to make their bikes. They paid up front knowing that their bike wouldn't show up for three to eight months. And they were more than happy to wait. And that was the crazy phenomenon that we didn't think was going to happen is every time people hit us up and we were like, Hey, you know, it's going to be another three months. We can offer you a refund. They'd be like, Nope. Mm. I'm fine to wait. I'm happy mm. with my place in line. I don't want to lose it. And that was what kept us alive was that these pre-orders kept flowing in. And, and, and uh, my background, you know, throughout everything, this entire story I've told you, I mentioned that I was, uh, you know, making YouTube videos. When Vine came out, I saw that as an opportunity to network. You know, unlike when you're in college, you have, you have plenty of peers around you that are like-minded that you can network with. I didn't have that. So I looked at Vine as that networking opportunity 
So through Vine, I, I met a ton of massive, massive creators. I, you know, I never really, my account never got past like 40,000 followers on Vine, but it allowed me to meet some big players so that when Super 73 came around, I took a bike to them and I said, hey, let's make videos. And that kind of ability to create viral is another thing that sort of positioned us to succeed where we had no money. We could make a viral video. We could get people to the top of the buying funnel just by going out with a camera and the bike. And that was like this little thing that so many other companies didn't have was that ability to create viral. And it is still a huge pillar of our entire organization. And it's about 80 to 90% of our marketing efforts are, are literally unpaid viral. So it's just content we make that people see. Was it an issue of you not knowing your costs? So you were then undercharging for these bikes on Kickstarter? Um, I feel like we knew the cost. Mm -hmm. The problem is as we started to buy more, it was like the demand kept going up. And I think people, the the market in the industry reacted to our Kickstarter because it, at the time it was one of the larger Kickstarters that had, that had happened and it was definitely the largest bike Kickstarter. The only bigger player in the space would have been at the time Saunders and, and they were making you know, $800 budget e-bikes for, for baby boomers and up. So it was a very different play that we had. And I think the world kind of realized that there was a market for millennials, Gen Xers who wanted a new mode of transportation. And so that kind of caused, caused all of our costs to be, to be, you know, obviously to, to drive up as well as these things we didn't factor in at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the tariffs. We had parts coming in from China, and, and when the tariffs hit, it really affected our business for a minute. Uh, luckily, we had kind of seen it coming, so we were able to, to pivot and get most of our manufacturing out of China, which which is great because now almost, I would say, 90% of it is is out of China completely. But it, it did you know cause our costs to go up. So it was these variables we didn't expect. We could buy steel for a bike at a certain price, but suddenly it was like, oh, well, now we have to make 500 of these and we have to pay for labor and we have to pay for the machines because we can't make enough. And so we were making bikes till two to three every morning, falling asleep where we stood, basically waking up a few hours later and starting again just to keep costs low. Did you ever think about going back to filming weddings when you lost your savings? I did. Very often I did. And that was out of obviously necessity, but every time I would shoot a wedding, it would take me away from super 73. And I would be, I always felt bad because I was the only one that was doing that. Everybody else seemed like they were fully committed and willing to lose it all. And, and, you know, my, my business partner, Aaron was, you know, DJing weddings for a while. And so we kind of tried to maintain that sort of like, let's do both, but it just wasn't working. Like to be pulled away from super 73 for an hour a day, honestly meant we would lose 20,000 in, in sales. Like it was this thing where if we weren't on it every single day because it was a company of three or four people. We all decided that it wasn't going to work if we didn't throw everything into it. There were times where I was deeply, deeply miserable. I was looking at, you know, negative $700 in my bank account. My phone wouldn't work unless I was connected to Wi-Fi because my cell service had been shut off. And it was those moments where I was like, stay the course, stay the course. It's going to pay off. You know, I, I, I do have, I am kind of a, a spiritual person. And so kind of this, this belief that there was something bigger at play mm -hmm. uh, also helped. It was, uh, call it what you want to call it. I mean, even if you call it naive ignorance, I'll take it because no, no. it kept hey. me going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, 
it, it kept me knowing that like, Hey, it can't get much worse. It can't get much worse. Everything's going to be okay. You know? And, and that's where it was like, when you lose the ability to put a value on money, literally nothing can stop you. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think where we all got to was we had learned that no amount of the banks coming after us, no amount of, you know, cell providers coming after us for our accounts could stop us from achieving this dream. And when everybody's united, you have no option but to win. And I think a lot of times you see these, this, this fissure in, in these business partner relationships where one just needs a paycheck. One just needs to make money. They don't have that same kind of common goal. And the way that we all had the same common goal was the way that we survived. And so, yeah, not shooting weddings was, I think one of the biggest benefits to keeping us hungry. How are you living with negative $700 in your account? Miserably. It was bad. So it got to the point where I actually started, <laughs> I shifted over to Cash App because Cash App had just come out and they had, they had released the cash card, which was this debit card that could be linked to your Cash App. So I would find cash or do jobs for cash or sell mm-hmm. my stuff in cash and then put that, like give it to a friend, have them Cash App me the money and I would keep my money there because when my money was in the Cash App, the bank couldn't touch it. And so that was basically how I managed to survive. So I stayed at negative 500 to negative 700 for a solid year and change. Mm. Um, And I would, you know, I would obviously like book a job or do something that I could bring it back to zero, but it would just hit again. I didn't have insurance. It was just, it was, it was a mess, but I could go buy a little Caesars pizza with my cash app card. uh, And that could get me through for, you know, normally it would get me about four days in. So I could, I could make a little Caesar's pizza last about four days. So you get creative, you know, and, and I had to obviously move out of my apartment and moved in with two other roommates in an apartment that was way too small. You know, we all had to share a bathroom together and it was, uh, it was a humbling experience and I definitely think I needed it because I, like I said, I felt, I felt like a king, you know, and when you feel like a king, the only places to go is to go down. And I'm glad I did because it was a huge reality check that like, oh, dude, you you were a big fish in the smallest of ponds. There was so much more to be done. Did your parents know the way you were living? Yeah. Yeah. My my parents, um, my poor mom, she is, I, I am so lucky to have the parents I have. They're unbelievable and um, so supportive and, and they always wanted to help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, occasionally they would find ways to help, but it was so important to me to not take from them because- you know, my parents have their own story and they had their own struggles for a long time. And, um, my dad was actually at one point extremely successful in the nightclub business. And, uh, you know, his convictions caused him to walk away and, and, um, and, you know, he lost everything, but, you know, for the betterment of his family and his ultimately his soul and his conscience. Uh, and so, you know, they, they had their own story, so I wasn't going to take from them. Um, my brother at the time was very much employed. And so there were multiple times where I was stranded in LA uh, or somewhere far from home because I had to do a drop off and didn't have enough gas to get back. So he would come in with the cash app help. He would throw 20 bucks into my cash app so I could get gas to go home. So there was, you know, definitely people around me that, that assisted, but I made it a point to not share too much because they would have wanted to, you know, give me the world. And that just wasn't Mm -hmm. something I was willing to do. It feels so much better today because of it. Right. Right. I, it is, it is nice. And, and, you know, and I, I definitely have made sure that, that everybody is whole and, and that, um, I've, I've thanked everybody for their support, but you know, it is, 
if I had just relied on them, I don't think I would have learned the lessons I needed to learn and I wouldn't have been as hungry. That's for sure. At what point in your life did you meet your wife? Hey, it's Mike. I hope you're enjoying this episode and conversation I'm having with Michael. Please take a couple minutes out of your time to give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you can, write a review and please share it with a friend or two. I'd appreciate it. Let's get back to my conversation with Michael. Um, that, that was, that was interesting. Um, I actually met her before super 73 was successful and she mm. likes saying that so that people don't think that, <laughs> <laughs> that she, that she married for the bike company. Uh, but yeah, I, um, I, I met her at a, at a church that we were going to at the time. Nice. And, um, and, uh, it was one of those moments where, you know, you see somebody from across the room and you just know. I had had a lot of awful relationships before that. I, you know, one of my exes ended up in a, in a, in a drunken craze, hitting me and stealing my truck and moving to North Carolina and then selling it. Mm. And that's like a wild story in itself. But when you have that sort of stuff happening, it it kind of, in a pattern, you kind of realize things about yourself that, that help you to, to, to understand the types of people that you attract in your life, I think. And that was something that was so big to me when I, when I met Janae, my wife, it was, she was a whole complete and very just healthy human being. Mm -hmm. And it was what I needed. I, I needed to meet somebody who was healthy, somebody who didn't need any fixing. And she actually did so much for me early on in encouraging me to keep going because, you know, I, I'd had other exes who left me because super 73 was such a failure. Mm-hmm. And one of my other exes at one point said, like, I need you to, I said, what would it take to make you happy? And she said, I need you to quit super 73 and get a real job, go sit at a desk and make a paycheck. Mm. And I, we had been together for years and I broke up with her in that same sentence. Yeah. You're like, um, I'm going to quit you right now. And right. Right. And it was, yeah. it, it was tragic because, I had known her my whole life mm. and I had thought that like, this is, this is the one that I'm, that I'm going to marry. And this is a different ex than the steal the truck. ex. <laughs> but, she, she did uh, you she, a favor, um, man. She did you a yeah, favor. Yeah, really. And, yeah. and it was, it was a hard thing to do, but you know, when I met Janae and I was broke, it never came up. The idea that we wouldn't succeed was never even on the table. Yes. She was so blindly supportive that, that it made it easy to, to go through the tough times. And maybe without her, you're not where you are today. A hundred percent. A hundred percent agree. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. This pandemic has got, oh, you before that, before that, the big question, the 15 startups that you were in, the 1% equity, how many of those are still alive today? Uh, zero. Okay. As far as I know, zero aside from Super 73, which technically wasn't even one of the original ones. Yeah. So did you get anything from those businesses at all? Knowledge, definitely knowledge and understanding of the startup world. It was basically a crash course in business partners, good and bad. You know, at at one point I had 25 business partners and, uh, and, you know, seeing how those relationships worked and and how they panned out really taught me a lot about what I've, what I've kind of been able to do at super 73. So back to the business and the pandemic, everybody, I feel like, uh, at least between March and a few months ago, everybody wants a bike. And everybody's on the market for a bike or electric bike, uh, mostly a mm-hmm. Super 73 bike. And mm-hmm. it seems like it's hard to get one of your bikes, right? Get your hands on one of yours today. Yeah, at times it's nearly impossible. And there's a video that, that went viral recently of ASAP Rocky pulling up in a sports car to a couple of boys riding Super 73s. Mm-hmm. 
and yelling at them because he ha- he wasn't able to order one and he was like, <laughs> where did you get it? I can't get my hands on one. And they're like, oh, we man. had to wait like eight months for it. And ASAP gets all upset and he speeds away and burns <laughs> rubber. And that is like one of the coolest things that's happened to us because, no you know, a- ASAP was like salty. He couldn't get a bike and that, that went on World Star and, and made the rounds. But it is it is wild. We don't try to keep them from people. It's, it's not what we're trying to do. It's, it's in our best interest to make sure everybody who wants to ride can ride. And we've been doing a lot to ensure that as we move forward and, and beyond how crazy 2020 was, that we can actually have inventory for people. But I think in the early days, it did help. It felt exclusive. You felt like a celebrity if you were able to get your hands on one. So what's the current business model? Is it is it more of like a pre-order thing if I want one? Or do you have some stuff in inventory? Are they at your showroom? The one I bought, I actually drove to Irvine and bought at your showroom. You, st- are you oh, still cool. have those? Yeah. Yeah. So we do have some inventory in stock. Mm-hmm. It's so hit and miss. But, you know, 2020, Super 73 was up 700%. Oh, and that was Good something that, thank you, but it, it was uh, it was painful. Yeah. Um you know, growing pains when, when you have a startup that grows that much in such a short amount of time, you start to encounter a lot of issues. And, uh, you know, you have angry customers because the pre-orders are taking so long. You got delays. You have things showing up that aren't quite ready to be showing up or being shipped out that aren't ready to ship out. And so 2020 was a huge learning moment for us. And I'm, you know, so grateful to the community for supporting us and keeping us, you know, kind of rallied through that year. You know, you go on Reddit and any given day, there's a complaint about a delay or a pre-order, but you go to the comments and there's a lot of people now that are saying like, Hey, don't worry. Happened to me too. You're going to get your bike. It's well worth it. It's so different than anything else on the market. And having that community element just so benefited us through the craziness of, of the past year. You even hired some folks from Disneyland, right? Yeah. Yeah. So as soon as <laughs> Disney closed, I was like, scoop them up. As, yeah. as scoop all of them up that we can scoop up. So I, I made a couple of public posts because you know I have a I have a pretty big following in in the Star Wars world, and so I, I had spent a lot of time at Disneyland prior to the closing, and developed a lot of relationships with employees there. And so I was like, hey, if we can help, let's help. They're going to help us. And you know, overnight, our disastrous customer service issue was pretty much remedied by the most professional, well trained customer service representatives in that are currently employed, you know, and, and that's, that's what's so cool. So, you know, yeah, I had the idea to to bring in Disney employees and they gave it kind of the Disney touch and they were able to deal with, you know, the, the frustration from our customers. And that was a walk in the park for them because they have to deal with, uh, you know, Disneyland customers every day. Yeah. And so how's business today? Is there still a bunch of backlog? There, I think there will always be some element of backlog. Uh, we have made some, big moves recently that, that are going to start to come out that will hopefully show everybody how much growth we're about to hit internally at Super 73. You know, we want a customer service team of 40 people. It's, it's, what, it's what we want. It's what we're going after right now. It's currently at like, I think we have 10. And so we want to hire a, a ton more to, to take care of that. And then with that comes operations and, and ordering and getting uh, replacement parts uh, in inventory so that when something breaks or somebody crashes, there's something that's ready to go to get them going again. So there's a lot that's going to be changing here in the next six months that we're infinitely excited for. And I think the community is going to be very grateful to see. Are one of those changes souping up these bikes? I Dude, I saw one bike that goes like 65 miles an hour. This dude is on <laughs> the five freeway 
and he's going through what? these. Yeah, man, you have to. See, I'll send you the YouTube link on a super. Yeah, no, 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 no. On on uh, a, okay. on on another bike. I I think it's more like a moped, but they're calling it an elect- yeah. on an e bike. That's not legal, right? Yeah. There's no way. Yeah, yeah. So there there are a lot of players, opportunists that have kind of entered the space that are not playing within the rules, and you know I think. There's two there's two routes you can go when you see somebody like that. You can be the tattletale and, and try to ruin everybody's fun, or you can stay the course and know that, like, hey, building something from the ground up is going to take a little bit longer, but it's better. Yeah, we I'd say our number one complaint is can the bikes go faster? They go 32 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, that is already, uh, you know, legally is as, quote, legally fast as we can push them. But as that regulation changes and things shift, which it will, I think you're going to start to see – a lot more, you know, a, a lot, a lot more options that allow riders to customize their bikes even better. And all of our new gen bikes, the RXs, the S2s, those come with updatable software. And that's the biggest key to all of this is that if you can get a bike that has, that can take a software update, then your bike suddenly has a, you know, seven year lifespan beyond what it originally would have had, because we can update that bike as new technology rolls out. And that's, what we're beginning to do. So are you going to track the bikes too? Like if one is missing or one gets stolen, there was a local store here. This lady walks in, I guess there's like three bikes that they're selling in their store, right? That they're carrying mm-hmm. your supers. And this, she literally sits on the bike and she's like pretending she's testing it out. Dude, she rides out and, and it's, she's gone. Oh my gosh. She's gone. I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard so many, there was a, a, a store in San Diego about a year and a half ago that had five or six super 73s and they also had $10,000 e-bikes. There was like a planned heist where they broke in and they only stole, they literally Mm. crawled over the $10,000 bike with the super 73s. Um, I have a a personal friend who just got his locks cut on the back of his Jeep while he was parked at a restaurant Mm. uh, and they, they stole both of the bikes off the back of his Jeep. So theft is obviously a huge issue to us here at Super 73. And we do have plans of implementing uh, tracking software for you and, and for the consumer. But it is something we want to be careful with because that comes with a whole new slew of regulations when you start to talk about whereabouts and, and tracking. So we're trying to do it safely so that the customer is, is in control. You know, we don't want to do a big data play. Like, you know, we're not a technology company when it comes to tracking and, and you know, customer data. So we are trying to be very careful, obviously, with that. And so it's taken a little bit longer than I think any of us want to. But that technology is there and it, it will be rolling out. Uh, Michael, realistically, when they steal these bikes, they can't charge them. And they're heavy bikes. Right. Like, how long right. can they pedal? Like, there's, right. there's no way. Well, in the early days, we knew all of our customers. I mean, as uh, up until even like two years ago, if somebody was like, hey, I need a charger, mm-hmm. we would know mm-hmm. why they needed a charger or, mm-hmm. hey, I need a battery. And so we would actually work with law enforcement to, to kind of get those bikes returned. And that happened quite often. Mm-hmm. Now we're just too big of a, a company to be able to do that safely and, and legally. So, you know, we, we, we can't do what we used to do on that end. But um, I do know a lot of people are I, the guy, my buddy who got his bike stolen, he literally is looking at the Craigslist ad on, um, you know, the Internet. And so a lot of them are, you know, found and returned. Um, I know one of our influencers, Jesse Wellen, saw the guy who stole his bike literally riding it in Venice Beach. And he walked up to him and said, hey, let me try that bike. And he just stole it back. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it is it is interesting seeing seeing this because it is such a flashy 
item. It's something that you, you can't not see. So yeah. when somebody's riding a stolen super 73, especially if they're pedaling it, it kind of, kind of raises some alarms and the community is very good about watching out for each other. So, you know, I would say if, if you're a member of the community and a bike is stolen, sharing it with the community is going to help you get it back a lot faster than working with the police. But yeah, in the future, these things are going to get better and they're going to change and they're going to evolve. And, you know, I think it's Van Moof that has a, a really cool tracking device on their bikes to where it'll alert the community. And they've had times where 10, 15 people roll up on a stolen Van Moof and they get it back. So, you know, obviously we're very concerned with safety and, and you know, legal regulations. So we're just playing it by ear and making sure we're doing everything appropriately as, as we grow. You've got great accessories, great accessories, even a very cool clothing line. I have the zip-up jacket that I wear too often. But oh, thank you. Yeah, I think you're missing one thing, and I hope you'd consider it. Tell, tell me. Pegs. Pegs, yes. I, I'll just, I'll spoil it for you right now. I literally have a room full of prototype pegs. I, there is not an accessory you can think of that we don't have coming out. It has been such a grind to get this stuff handled in a way that is fast enough for our community. We want to support the bikes. That's the biggest thing for us. And so the past four years have been about supporting the bikes. But we have two full-time accessories designers that have been cranking out accessories and we're just working on making sure that we can support those accessories that they need quality control and that we can basically allow our consumers to grow with the bike and a good example is we designed racks we designed and ordered hundreds maybe thousands yeah thousands of them well well over a thousand and, and, and probably more and we ordered them and we set what we wanted to see and we put our uh, tolerances in there and we did the engineering behind it. And when we ordered them, there was some issue that happened at the factory and they all showed up and they didn't have the tolerance we wanted them to have. So we canceled the orders. We literally refunded everybody. We scrapped all of those racks, took the cost ourselves because mm -hmm. we knew we couldn't put our name on a product that we didn't stand behind because there was a chance these racks would break. And so it was a hard decision to make, especially at a time where so many of our riders want accessories. They need these racks, but it was so important to us that we make sure that it's done right. That so we just took the hit on the chin and we went back to the drawing board. So those racks are getting re-engineered and, and rebuilt to be stronger and better, which is a delay. But that's basically the story of our accessories here at Super 73. It's just been kind of one thing after another as we've grown. But the good news is there's so much coming. Talking about growing, I feel like you're growing is kind of an organic thing because it's a. I think the product sells for itself, and I, 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 it's incredibly impressive of the way you built the brand. Because every time I'm on Snapchat, by the way, I see an ad, and then, but, <laughs> but, I, but I think the celebrities like Will Smith, Madonna, Justin mm -hmm. Bieber, Warren Sapp. The first time I saw it was Todd Gurley was riding around at Rams Camp on uh, mm -hmm. Hard Knocks. And I was always mm -hmm. into the e-bike. I was like, man, I want to buy an e-bike. And I want to get a cool one. I don't want some geeky e-bike. And this is the right. one, right? I finally picked it up. But how did you build your growth? Was it was it organic? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of my chief marketing officers. The thing I, I hope that, you know, I can I can leave behind is, is changing the way that marketing is done. Um, we didn't pay a cent for two and a half, three years. I didn't pay any money in ads. Um, if I ran an Instagram ad, it was that a post was doing well. So I put $50 behind it. That is the, the mm. extent of the marketing budget I had. Um, what I did have 
And what I did utilize was my influencer network. And so I made it a goal pretty early on that, hey, we're going to be a YouTube channel. That's what Super 73 is. It's a content creator in the same way Casey Neistat's a content creator. Garrett Watts is a content creator. Um, Jesse Wellens, it's going to be literally a content play. So what does that mean? Well, it means that our bike needs to be an accessory to people who make good content. And the biggest one I would say early on was uh, Jesse Wellen. He found us pretty early in the process and was like, I could do a lot with this. And we partnered with him on some stuff uh, that made his content better. And then Casey Neistat followed and he was like, hey, I want to do a review of this. And we actually said no to him for a year because we didn't feel like our bike was at a Casey Neistat review level at the time. So once it was ready to be reviewed by Casey, he was biting at the, you know, chomping at the bit to, to review it. So it was good energy there. The Rams are the same thing. I mean, before the Rams, uh, the the Panthers were a big one. Cam Newton bought like thirty of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was on Hard Knocks too. Yeah, 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 and and he bought them. We didn't. We we gave him like two or three for free, mm-hmm. but he bought the bikes, and that was something that was always important to us. We've never once paid for an influencer post. Mm. Every single person you've seen post a Super Seventy Three has posted it because they wanted to, not because we paid them to. And, you know, there's a, there's a great story about, uh, Scott Disick and he had a brand deal with another e-bike company and we ended up showing up unknowingly. We, we didn't know he had a brand deal. We ended up showing up the day before and TMZ caught him and his, his girlfriend at the time, uh, <laughs> riding super 73 no and, uh, we, we didn't pay a cent for that. And it, it caused major problems, obviously, with this brand deal and the other bike company. But it's just a great example of if you make something cool, yeah. you don't have to pay to get people to share it. They want to share it because they want to be a part of the story. And Will Smith's another good example. He called us the day before he was supposed to be leaving, or I guess two days before he was supposed to be leaving for Cartagena uh, to, to shoot. He was shooting uh, Aladdin. And he... He was like, hey, you know, well, his assistant was like, hey, Will really loves these bikes. You got to trust me that, like, he will use them. At the time, we had no money in the bank account. We had no bikes. I jumped on a plane, spent every penny we had to get to Will Smith overnight. Overnighted the bikes. It cost us way too much money mm. on the whim that, hey, we get a chance at Will Smith. We need to take this chance. And he burst into the room. Mm. Uh, literally picked me up, spun me around. I'm not kidding. It was one of the most surreal moments of my entire life that like I am being bear hugged by Will Smith because he was making a video at the time. So he was on, you know, and it was my first interaction with him. And I sat with him for about 40 minutes and I told him the entire story, basically how I've told it to you. And he was so excited and inspired by what we were doing um, that he was like, I want to help. A few days later, he, he had his assistant send us a text that was like, hey, Will says thank you. Here's something to prove it. And then sent me the link to Will's new Instagram video that had just gone live that was literally a Super 73 ad. And he tagged us. And he's on the bike, and he kind of pulls it back like he's going into a wheelie. And then it enters into that meme transition where the bike starts traveling through the galaxy, starts traveling into other memes. That thing got 20 million views. And that was because Will Smith wanted to make something cool and thank the company that that helped him make it. And it was just another kind of sign of like, if you do it organically and you do it authentically, you don't need to pay for engagements. 
Wow, that's a million dollar ad right there. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, it is. When when we were being uh, we were doing some due diligence for a deal, um, they were like, "Can you put a number on the uh, the ad spend that you would have had to spend if these weren't free?" And it was pushing five hundred million dollars. No. After I did the math, um, I contacted all these agents of all these people, like you know, girly that that are writing it for free. And I'm like, Hey, what do you charge for a sponsored post like this? And I would send them their, their own post that, mm-hmm. that Gurley had made. And, mm-hmm. you know, they gave me the numbers on it. It took quite a few days to put that together, but I went back to the, <laughs> to the team and I was like, Hey guys, like on the low side, we're looking at a hundred million dollars on the premium side. We're looking at well over 500 million. And that was a really exciting number to get to share that we spent no dollars oh, doing man. that. Good for you guys, man. That's when you know you've got a product. <laughs> I mean, having a cool product does make it easy. Oh. It really does. It's, it's not like we're a bunch of uh, magicians over here. So Will Smith is down to earth as he seems? I, honestly, yes. And, you know, they always say don't meet your heroes. Uh, Post mm-hmm. Malone being one. Joel McHale being another for me. I was huge, huge fan of Joel McHale. And... I have never had a negative experience. Now it could be because I'm giving them something they really want. Um, and I, I think that's kind of it is it's, it's interesting to go into this as, as more of a peer because you have something that they genuinely want. They want that super 73. They want that storytelling. They want that excitement. And so it's made these sorts of engagements way better. Post Malone was too sweet. He was too kind. I mean, and, and I've heard great things about Post Malone, but you know, he took so much time away from, his music video to spend with us, to learn about the product, to learn about the bike. He was genuinely enthused. We rode for about 20 minutes together, causing his music video shoot to be delayed. But that was because he was so excited about the product. And so all these people have been really wonderful people. And it's a big thing in that we only work with people that we we do really like. So a lot of the influencers we have is because we're big fans. We're just, that's just how it is. We're big fans of them. What would you tell yourself prior to super 73 if you had to do it all over again i think i mean there's obviously so many things uh i wouldn't want to scare myself with how bad things got so you know i I wouldn't put any of that fear in my head i think that naivete of of not knowing how bad it was going to get for a while was important to have you you got to know it's going to get bad but you know i think the humility is a big one our our the current team aaron legrand and i you know here in the u.s we've we've been able to stay humble through all of this because we know that it's it's not important yet what we're doing is really cool but we're not to where we should be we're still a young company we're still a startup uh we're not a bunch of elon musks or or uh <laughs> or, um you know we're not we're not the the creative team of apple uh we're very much just a group of people with a cool idea that seems to be working at the time so staying humble i think is is one of the most important things for us as we've grown, you know, there's, there's times to celebrate and times to be excited, but humility, as long as you can know that there's always more work to do, I think that that's one of the most important things you've never made it. So don't think that, that you have, you know? Yeah. And you're still young. You're way ahead of your time. I think you're, you're doing the right things, man. I think you did it the right way in terms of steps and phases. If you had to do it over again, like the experience with, filming the weddings and negative $700 in your account, like are, are those stepping stones to where you are today? Or, or would you rather go into this thing at a 21 year old kid going right into it? You think you'd be that successful today if you did it that way? 
it's a good question. Um, I think com- complacency is the killer of, of innovation. Um, it's the killer of drive. It's the killer of wanting to survive. And so, um, I, I think, you know, we talked about times in, in my career where I got complacent, um, and you suddenly see the innovation stop. So I think, you know, to, to answer that question as best I can, I, I wouldn't want to change things because if I had succeeded a little bit earlier on, I think I would have gotten complacent too fast because you get comfortable yeah. and you're like, all right, this is the amount I want. Mm-hmm. This is the success I want. And there were times at Super 73 where that was the case. And there was one point where we started to pay ourselves $3,000 a month flat. So just a $3,000 check before taxes is what we made. So at the end, we're probably living off of 19 100 20 2100 max and i thought hey i made it we are getting paychecks from doing this thing um that that equates to minimum wage um but but at the time it was it was everything that i could have wanted because suddenly i could buy food and suddenly i could pay my bills and that almost actually made me complacent for a brief moment because your perspective changes so much as 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 you lose everything and grow and, and now, you know, you've got a, a healthy paycheck and we're by no means rich here at super 73. We're, we're still hustling and we're still, um, you know, growing and, and working, but remembering that like, Hey, we're not where we want to be where we don't have enough employees. We don't have enough bikes on the road. We could do better. We could do more. I think that makes us excited. So staying hungry and, and going about it the way we went about it, where we didn't get funding too early I love that. I wouldn't change that. A lot of these companies, they get funding too early and the demands are set too high and they can't ever achieve it. And we saw that happen with Boosted. And we were big fans of the team over at Boosted. We were good friends with them. Um, We were kind of coming up together. The only difference is they took a $70 million round when we took an $8 million round. Hmm. And you see who's who's alive today. And I think that's really telling of the space and the, the electric mobility space and the startup space they took their money from Silicon Valley and they had huge, huge goals that they were forced to try to meet. And when one thing went south, the entire company crumbled. And that's never been the case with us because we've sold the bikes we have. We haven't taken money that we can't afford to take. And even when we do, it's knowing that we have a really healthy growth plan to meet those numbers and then exceed it. So we've never played that investor game. And I think that's kind of helped us. I didn't know at the time, you know, at the time I would have loved a $70 million check and I would have said yes if somebody offered it. Mm -hmm. But by not getting that, it helped us to have to find a way to market better, have to find a way to manufacture better, have to find a way to build a business better. And yeah, you you have to give up your paycheck. That's just, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. But it allows for so much more success on the back end if you make it through that time. All those Kickstarter orders, have they all been fulfilled? Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, I think uh, the, the longest it took on that was like 10 months, I think, was the final one that we were able to send out. Nice. So, yeah, every Kickstarter order has been fulfilled, which is not the case with very many Kickstarters these days. Right. It's, the platform is kind of, it's kind of rotting. We made a choice when we launched our next product to never go back to Kickstarter. Mm. And that was tough because you lose, the, you lose the massive audience that sits on that website and waits for a new product to hit. And we said, no, we cannot become a Kickstarter company. We cannot depend on this method of doing business to work. 
So we launched it ourselves. And, you know, our second launch, we generated well over 1.5 in that 30-day window. And that was through our own platform. What don't you like um, about Kickstarter? The volatility of it is one thing. The look that it gives, I, I very grateful for our first launch. But if you look at Kickstarter companies, you don't view them the same way as first-party companies. And I think that's kind of an important thing when you're building credibility in the space. There's so many people that have made so much more money than I'll ever make on Kickstarter and good for them, but that's a risky game to play. You know, I think Kickstarter comes with this notion of you probably won't get your product. Um, and that was the case for a lot of things that followed us where, you know, in those following years, there's these big ideas and they just never came to fruition. I'm still waiting on a couple. Uh, there was a, a bottle I got that's supposed to tell you everything that's in it. Um, <laughs> that, that like four or five years later is just kind of become a coffee mug that tells you when, when the drink is getting cold. Um, so, you know, there's, there's these ideas that, that it kind of becomes like how you just laugh, you know, and it kind of becomes a, a joke. And, and I think we wanted to get away from that as fast as we could. Kickstarter is a great platform for a lot of different reasons, but it wasn't a great platform to continue launching vehicles on. So have you had that? I made it moment yet. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's all perspective when I'm texting with Joel McHale, it's easy to be like, Oh, I made it. This mm -hmm. is everything that young Michael wanted. Um, when I'm setting up a deal with Will Smith or I'm shipping bikes to, you know, my favorite fill in the blank singer, player, actor, um, there's, there's really great moments, you know, and there was one recently where, um, I was able to work with Rahul Kohli, um, who's become a, a good friend big actor, eye zombie, uh, haunting of Bly Manor. And he's supposed to be in just a huge amount of projects coming up where I'm literally building him a bike that features lightsaber technology. And so for, you know, for nerd Mike, I, I got really exciting and it was very much like I'm doing it. I made it, but we still are so far. We're so far from what we want. We're so far from Honda. We're so far from Tesla. We're so far from Apple and I think that's what we all want here is, is a legacy brand. So what is that? What is the future? And do you ever see yourself doing anything else? I, I see myself doing so many things and, and it's almost, I almost get like antsy where I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, this idea, yeah. this will work, you know? And, and you, you're kind of, you're kind of caged for the time being. I'm, I'm caged with super 73, but it's the best thing to be because I'm still learning. I'm still growing. We're still making this thing a success. So we're all committed to it. Um, you know, we're not launching our new products with, or our new ideas, and we're not necessarily pivoting to other companies or starting other things right now because we all know that Super 73 needs 100% of our attention right now. And so, you know, we've, we've definitely been very focused on making sure that hits. And I don't think any of us are going to be happy until we hit IPO for, you know, mm. one, two, Ten billion dollars, something crazy, you know. It's like let's just do it. Let's just mm. let's just go all in. Let's make something big. Let's make a Honda. Let's make a Tesla. Let's make an Apple. And I genuinely think that we have the momentum to be able to do that. Nice man. That's a that's a decent goal. I like it. Thank you. Nice. Um, could you know? Obviously, it's a startup. Could lose everything tomorrow. You can't forget that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. It, we we feel good. We feel really healthy, and we have the right partners on board now that that are going to ensure that we have long term growth. But I do want to, you know, always state like it's, it's volatile. You just, you don't know. The market could completely change tomorrow. Yeah. Right. I forgot to ask you about the uh, follow-up on the pegs. When do you think those will come out? <laughs> I'll make sure you get one of the first pairs. <laughs> okay. um, you know, we're looking at, we're looking at launching a ton of stuff early this summer. Cool. 
So we're, we're just about there. We're just showing up the final details. Sweet. A lot of the times we're showing up packaging, trying to make sure that things arrive undamaged. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that'll be, that'll be real soon here. Good man. Looking forward to it. Listen, I've got the S2, uh, like I said, bought in your showroom in Irvine. I believe actually, I think you peeked your head out that day and was like, Oh, who's, who's going to buy one of these bikes. And then you kind of went That's back. Cool. I, yeah. I do. I do try. And I was actually wondering if, if we did get a chance to meet. Yeah. Um, I do try to pop out as often as possible, less now because you know, demands are so high and, and I am literally booked in meetings all day, but meeting the community, it's, it's the best part of this company. I mean, the people are everything. The community is so unbelievably cool. You go to one group ride and you're like, Oh, okay, I get it. I get it. These people are different. They're creative. The bikes are almost unrecognizable, you know? So it is, yeah. it's really cool to see. So yeah, I, I, I am glad to be able to pop out now and then. Yeah, what you guys have built, you should be extremely proud of yourselves. It wasn't easy. The grind was incredible. You have an incredible story. And I actually took a bike ride from L.A. to Orange County, and I would have never done that if I didn't have one of your bikes. Yeah, yeah, I would (laughs) have never done that. And actually, when I was was going, there were these dudes on those, you know those little like moped, uh, little like uh, motorcycle looking things, they go like 70 miles an hour? Yeah, and they're like jamming by, right? And we came past them because they took a little break. They're like, "Hey, what are those? Those are those super bikes, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, man, nice. yeah." So keep, that's so cool. Keep doing what you're doing, man. You are doing amazing things, and um, don't stop doing it. Thank you. I really appreciate your, your your support on that, your time, and and your patience with me. I know that it's been tough to obviously connect, so I, I'm really grateful that that you've uh, hung in there with me as, as my schedule's been out of control. Thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be able to do it. And, um, you know, obviously sharing too much is, is often very fun for me and I'm able to do it without um, getting in too much trouble. So I was happy to be able to uh, share some, some cool stories with you and your listeners. You know, when I reach out to people, their following doesn't really mean much to me. It's a plus. It's a bonus, of course. Uh, you know, everybody wants a big following on their platform nowadays. But it's really about the story, the story themselves, because Super 73 is one of my favorite brands. So I wanted to get the inside as to how this thing went down. And man, I'm so happy I reached out to him. And man, I, I am so grateful that he put the time out and uh, had us all get into his life for, for about an hour there. But Michael, to me, is a stranger. We're strangers. We've never met before. I've never met Michael. And I, and I hope one day we get to meet each other. But I can't thank him enough and, and my prior guests enough for opening up. Because you don't really know the person until you get to talk and learn about the person. And in the first few minutes, you get to really understand who they are. You know, kind of you know, from the get-go. And I knew right off the bat that Michael was open. And this is going to be a good one because he didn't hold back. And his story was an open book. And like you said at the end there, he enjoys opening up and talking about it. And I, I can't tell you how much that means to me because I, we don't know each other. And he's like, who? I'm a stranger and I'm asking you know personal questions. Sometimes people get offended. I've had that in the past. But I just, I don't know, man. It just feels good when, when people are open and are able to talk and they're free and then they're, they are themselves but his story is awesome. And there was a quote that I saw this morning. It said, invest in the process, not the outcome. Because when we have goals, we always think about the outcome. When is the outcome? 
When do we get to see our outcome? When am I going to reach that goal? But really, it's about the process. You got to live in the process and forget about the outcome. If you live in the process and start grinding and thinking about the process every day and getting closer and closer to that goal, you're going to hit the goal. It's not going to be an overnight success. But I've said in the past, as long as you have a goal, you're going to get there. Some crawl, some walk, some run, some drive, some fly. Just create the goal and get there. So invest in the process, not the outcome. Thank you all so much again for making me a part of your day. I hope you enjoyed that one. And I hope you share this with a friend because we can all use a story like this. By the way, I hope he IPOs and gets on the stock market. I'd be all over that. I'd back him up right away. I'd be all over this, man, because I believe in him. I believe in his partners. I believe in his business, his company, his platform, his brand, his business model. Like, I'm all over this guy, man. He's, He's the real deal. I am Mike Gabriel. Thank you so much for making me a part of your day. Until next time, folks, no wasted days. Let's go. 